This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. You can tell more about the health of a church by what happens in the church lobby than by what happens on stage. Hi, I'm Carl Vaders, and welcome to The Church Lobby, conversations on faith and ministry. Welcome to the second of our two special episodes that we're running back-to-back. Last week, we had an interview that Gary Garcia did with me on a recent Sunday in January 2024, in which our home church honored Shelley and me as we ended our 30 years on the pastoral staff, 25 years as the lead pastor, six years as the teaching pastor. This episode features the message that I preached that day about what we're doing next. It includes why God called us to the ministry of helping small churches thrive. It also includes some key points that we teach to our fellow small church pastors, like the theory of the long tail, the grasshopper myth, the prime mandate, and a bunch more. In addition, I talk in this message about how people can support us in this new era of ministry. We will no longer be receiving a salary from the church. Instead, we're raising all our own funds as we go out as missionaries to the small churches that are in need, because what we've discovered is that the churches that need our help the most can afford it the least. And then the message ends with one of the most touching stories I have ever heard about a small church pastor who, like so many others, is one of the unsung heroes of the faith. Also, as a reminder, my next book, Desizing the Church, How Church Growth Became a Science, Then an Obsession, and What's Next, is coming on April the 2nd, 2024. We've been receiving some wonderful endorsements for it from church leaders who have read advanced copies, including Dr. Gary McIntosh, Sean Nemechek, the author of The Weary Leader's Guide to Burnout, Greg Atkinson of the First Impressions Conference. As an example, here's what Peyton Jones of New Breed Training and the author of Church Plantology wrote about it. Quote, Carl Vader's single-handedly changed the conversation on church size in America. Tracing the trends and trenches the church growth movement fell into, Vader's now hands us a shovel to dig our way out. A timely book that will rescue you from the fads and lead you back to the facts. Timeless facts that are principled from the pages of scripture. Thank you to Peyton Jones for that wonderful endorsement. I can't wait to share this book with you. It comes out April 2nd. You can pre-order it now anywhere you buy books. Now, don't forget to stick around when the message is over. I'm going to come back at the end with some additional thoughts about where the Lord is leading us, when we might be coming to a conference near you, and how you can support us. comfortable talking about myself, and I like looking ahead rather than backwards, so how about we start shifting gears? (laughs) All of that to say, however, I am profoundly grateful for the honors that you are giving us today. Uh, Shelley and I could not be more grateful for this and for your continued support of us, but let's take a look at this together. Let's stand, and we're going to open with a, a scripture passage that will be our key passage for the last half of the message today, but let's start with it as well. Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 11 through 13 read this way. 
So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunity to expound on it today. I thank you for the opportunity to offer our thanks to you for the blessings that you have provided for us. And we pray that we will honor you in all that we do as we spend time in your word this morning. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Yeah, today is a very strange day for us. It's a wonderful day, but it's a strange day. It's the end of a big era for us and the beginning of another. So we've, we've talked about some of the past, but now let's build a bridge from that to look to the future. For, um, for 11 years now, since writing the first book, we've had a ministry to small church pastors that we now call Helping Small Churches Thrive. We did this ministry for the first five years by mistake. Uh, I wrote this book, didn't think anything would happen with it, and it started taking off right away. I started getting speaking requests and podcast requests and all kinds of other things, and we just kept saying yes to responses, to requests. And it got to the point after three or four years where we looked around and realized this may be a thing now. And right at about that time, as we were trying to figure out what to do next and where the Lord was leading us, uh, Pastor Gary and Amy started feeling the call to be the lead pastors here, and then Gary came in and asked to take my job. And um, it so happened that God's call upon them to be the lead and our call to be doing this really helped uh, to bless each other and I believe to bless Cornerstone as well. Uh, so that now we've grown, this ministry has grown so much and the demands on it are so big that it is more than full time. And we need to be able to, when we come back home, to just be home and to just relax and just recover and not have responsibilities of being part of the staff here at Cornerstone. Uh, so that we can just come here to be filled up so that we can go and that we can empty out as we bless others. So I'm going to talk this morning about some things um, that I talk to small church pastors about when we travel uh, that will also apply in your life and that you can take home and that you can use as well. I want to start with uh, something that I show small church pastors that most of them don't know uh, and that if you've never heard before, don't feel stupid about it because most people haven't. I, I tend to find things in obscure corners. So a couple of years ago, I heard about this thing called the, the theory of the long tail. And we'll put up this illustration on the screen for you. The theory of the long tail is how all of the big high-tech companies work, uh, like Apple and uh, Amazon and Facebook. But let's use YouTube as an example. So on YouTube, there are millions of videos and there are millions being uploaded just about every day. On the left, you've got what they, what they call the viral videos, right? Everybody wants the viral video. So on the left, going up and down, you've got how popular a single video is. And as you go along, you've got how many videos there are, okay? So on the left, right over there, you've got one video right here that is the most watched YouTube video ever. It's got over 10 billion, it's the only one with over 10 billion views, and it at this point has over 13 billion views. Anybody got a guess as to what the number one most viewed video on YouTube is? Oh, we got, a, we got, a, we got one who got it right here. Baby Shark. Yeah, because toddlers go again, 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 again. Over 13 billion views for the baby shark, yeah. But there's only one, right? You go over a little more, and there are about a dozen videos that have over a billion views. 
You go over over a little bit more and you've got a few hundred videos that have in the hundreds of millions, but it drops really fast. And what you end up having is you've got a whole bunch of videos that have 200 views, that have 150 views, that have 100 views. And then when I'm sharing this with my small church pastor friends, what I tell them is this. And then way, 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 way over here, that's your church live stream that was watched by two people last week. <laughs> and thankfully, they laugh like you just laughed because otherwise I'd be in trouble saying that. But they know we're all in the same place. They, that, that's one of the places where they go, oh, he gets us. Yeah. And it's very easy to get discouraged when you look at that and think it's just two views. But here's the deal. Here's how the long tail works. YouTube knows that there are as many eyeballs on the screen in the long tail as there are eyeballs on the screen in the big spike. YouTube knows the big spike only works because the long tail works and the long tail only works because the big spike works. Now, why am I telling you about YouTube? Here's why. Let's replace the words. This is exactly how the church works. So on the left, you've got the up and down, how big an individual church is. And then along here, you've got how many churches of this particular size they are. And this is the diagram of how the church internationally works. On the left, you've got actually two churches. There are two churches in the world. And depending on whose number you have, one of them is the biggest church in the world. So let's say there are two biggest churches in the world one in Africa, one in India, and each of them has over half a million members. Right. So it's, wow, like you just said, but there's only two of them. Immediately it drops, and you've got about fewer than a dozen churches that have over 100,000 people. Then it drops again, churches that have over 10,000, 1,000. And what you end up having then is you've got a whole bunch of churches that have 200, 150, 150, and even 20 or a dozen over here. So it's very challenging to be in a church that's quite frankly 20 or a dozen but do you realize that a church of 20 is far 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 more common than even a church of 200 is the church of jesus christ moves forward and has for 2000 years and counting almost exclusively on the multiplication of smaller venues not on the building of larger ones and these are things that we're simply not told that we don't realize so we look at this and we go okay which half of the church do we need or not need well youtube figured out that we need everybody so we in the church need to understand that as well. I'm not anti-big church. I'm grateful for the churches in the big spike. But here's what we discovered. What we discovered was, of all of the training material that is created from churches for other churches, like material that a pastor will pick up and go, help me to pastor better, and they'll buy a book or they'll hear a podcast or whatever, resources to help pastors be better pastors, Almost all of it is created by churches in the big spike, and almost all of what they say only works for churches in the big spike. Almost nothing is written from the, small, from the long tail for the long tail, which is why when I wrote my book 11 years ago, I had no idea what I was tapping into, because here's, here's how it runs. If you lined up all of the churches in the world, you, you've got, well, first of all, Christians. We've got about 2 billion Christians in the world. So if you lined up all the Christians in the world, what you'd find is that half of the Christians in the world attend churches in the big spike, and half of the Christians in the world, about one billion people, attend churches in the long tail. And the dividing line between that one billion on one side and one billion on the other side is a congregation of about 200. So half the Christians in the world attend churches under 200, half the Christians in the world attend churches over 200. Now, if you divide that out, not by the number of Christians, but by the number of churches, it skews very differently. What you find is that 
fewer than 10% of churches in the world are over 200, and over 90% of churches in the world are under 200, which means 90% of pastors who are pastoring are in the long tail, not in the big spike. So 90% of the resources are created from and for this, but 90% of churches and pastors are living here. So that's why when I wrote it, it's not that I'm particularly smart. I was just tapping into something huge that hadn't been tapped into before and, and most people didn't realize was even there. So our call in helping small churches thrive is to reach and resource and encourage the 90% of pastors and the 90% of churches who serve half of the body of Christ on earth. That's, so it's, it's just that. So we should have that accomplished by like next year. We've discovered that the best way to help small churches is to help small church pastors. That's our market. That's who we're trying to reach. Those are the people that we're trying to bless. Did you realize that pastors may be the only care profession that generally does not require the people in that profession to take regular pauses for learning, for growth, or for their own emotional care? If you're a therapist, you're required to go to therapy. If you're a doctor, you're required to sharpen your skills. If you're a teacher, you're required to learn new educational ways and get more education occasionally. Pastors generally are not required to do that, and most of us are working hard and not getting the resources back in. So once I learned about the long tail, once I learned about how under-resourced pastors in this long tail are, I realized that, we were gonna, that God was calling us to do three things. First of all, to encourage small churches and their pastors. Secondly, to provide resources that are small church specific. And thirdly, to help bridge the gap between big and small so that we can work together. They're working together on YouTube. They ought to be able to work together in the body of Christ, right? The big and the small can work together better. So that's how this ministry has grown. It's grown along those lines. So I want to take a couple of minutes to talk about what we've done to do that, what we're doing to meet that need, and where we're going. As we do that, I'm also going to be walking through principles that will apply in your life, in your spiritual walk, uh, and even in your family and in your business as well. And then I'm going to end with a handful of ways that you can help us by stepping up and helping us as we help small churches and small church pastors. So, as was mentioned earlier, this started uh, 11 years ago when I wrote this book called The Grasshopper Myth, and since then, it has actually been translated into four different languages. Spanish, which some of you in the room helped proofread because I had no idea. Uh, French, Croatian, and the newest one is German. We don't even have any German copies with us today because it's currently being printed right now in Germany, and we will be in Germany in March to see it for the first time and to be able to bring some back with us. So that's been translated into four different languages. So here's the deal. When you write a book called The Grasshopper Myth, like Ricky used to say to Lucy, you got some splaining to do. What is the grasshopper myth? It's such a strange term, right? And I did that on purpose. I wanted to create intrigue with the title, and it appears to have worked. So what is the grasshopper myth? Here's my definition. It's the false impression that our small church ministry is less than what God says it is because we compare ourselves with others. What's the dangerous word in that sentence? Compare. We all know it, don't we? Comparison is the death of healthy ministry, Comparison is the death of a healthy family. You comparing yourself with others will either fill you with pride or fill you with shame, and neither one of those is a proper attitude to go through life with. 
Comparison kills. So let's take the word small church ministry out of it, and let's just put a blank in there. And I want to ask you, what would you put in there? Because usually I'm talking to small church pastors, so it works for them. But what would you put in that blank? It's the false impression that your what is less than what God says it is because you're comparing yourself with others. What would you put in that? Maybe for some of you, your family, right? Oh, our family is such a mess. I wish we were like that other family. They're perfect. Yeah. Yeah, good luck with that. That's, haven't found one yet. Right? Or maybe you, you'd put your skill set in that. Oh, I wish I could do what that person does. They have so much talent that I'm just sitting over here doing this. Or maybe you'd put your intelligence in there. Oh, they are so smart. I wish I was smarter. Why am I so stupid? Right? Or maybe it's even your personality. Oh, I wish I was outgoing like them. I'm just not. I'm just a wallflower. Nobody likes me. Whatever. Right. Think, what do you put in that space at a regular basis? Because just about everybody does. We've got something we put in that space and we look around and we compare ourselves with others. And for most of us, we see people who are doing better than, than us in that or it appears to us they're doing better and we're filled with shame. And for the narcissist among us, we're convinced we're doing it better than everybody else and we're filled with pride. Neither one of them is healthy. So that's what the grasshopper myth is. But the question then becomes, why did I call it the grasshopper myth? What, what's this got to do with grasshoppers, Carl? Well, here's where I got it from. The Bible. Numbers chapter 13. Moses sends the 12 spies into the promised land to say, hey, can we take the land or not? 12 of them come, the 12 of them come back. 10 come back with a negative report. And part of their negative report on the promised land includes these words. All the people we saw there are of great size. One translation says there are giants in the land. And then they said this. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. According to the text, where did they see grasshoppers first? In their own eyes. If you don't see a grasshopper in your mirror, no one else will see a grasshopper in you. It doesn't begin with them and how well they're doing. It begins with you and how well you perceive what God is doing through you. Eleanor Roosevelt is credited with saying, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. It begins with self-despising. Now, that might sound like bad news, but it's actually good news. Because if the grasshopper idea, if me feeling like a grasshopper is because of what they did, I can't change them, and I'm stuck as a grasshopper. But if I recognize that it's from my interior attitude, I can change it, and I can have victory over it. If you don't see a grasshopper in the mirror, no one else will see a grasshopper in you. This is backed up in the New Testament as well. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and they had all kinds of hassles. Everybody was fighting each other, and they were saying, I'm better than you because I was this. I'm better than you because I was this. And he actually uses the analogy of a physical body, and he says, what would happen if your body was fighting your hand against your feet, against your head, against your toenails? What would happen there? And here's how he begins the idea, 1 Corinthians 12, 15. He says, now if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. Later on, he also says, and the hand can't look at the foot and say, well, because you're just a smelly old foot. He doesn't say smelly old. I added that. But even Paul's body analogy does not start with the hand looking down on the foot. Paul's body analogy starts with the foot despising its own role. That's where it begins. 
That's something we need to overcome. And every one of us is, has that issue in some way or another that we're dealing with, that we're struggling with. For the pastors I talk to, it's the size of their church. For you, it's going to be something else. Whatever you put in that, you need to understand that you have the ability, with God's help, through, through the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling us especially, to be able to recognize, wait a minute, I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. <laughs> And that becomes your identity, and that stops you from comparing with anybody else because it's all about Jesus and how he sees you and not about how you see yourself. Well, so this is part of what we want to do. And part of what we're doing is we're creating resources. One of the resources we created most recently is a podcast, which we now entitle The Church Lobby. If those hands look familiar, that's because it's Solomon and Yanira Joy's hands because Solomon designed that wonderful uh, logo for me for our podcast. And uh, he designed it. And the mu- if you've ever listened to the podcast, the original theme music for it was actually composed by Jack Wilkins uh, when he was here as part of our worship team. And uh, Lucas is actually one of the instrumentalists on it. And the podcast po- is produced by our daughter, Veronica. It's edited by our son, Phil. And the reason I called our podcast The Church Lobby is this. You can tell more about the health of a church by what happens in the church lobby than by what happens on stage. You can tell more about the health of a church by what happens in the church lobby than by what happens on stage. Because it's just like every first date. On the first date, you're putting your best foot forward. They are not seeing the ugly sides that will come out later if you keep dating. What we're putting on stage is our best, as we ought to. But what's really going on happens in the conversations in the church lobby. Are they healthy and are they uplifting and are they caring or are they backbiting and angry and sarcastic? And I've seen churches where on stage things are great, but you spend time in the lobby and you go, oh, there's a cancer here. This is ugly. And, you know, God has helped us to have a healthy lobby. God has helped us with healthy conversations and healthy relationships and honesty where we work through and we talk through these things together. You can also tell more about your own spiritual strength and your own spiritual place right now in the same way. The way you are spiritually is not how you behave on Sunday. The way you are spiritually and your true spiritual strength is told more by what you do when you think no one is looking than by how you behave on Sunday morning. What's your church lobby when you think no one else is watching, when you're having private conversations with people who think you're going to keep your secrets? How do you actually behave there? That shows you the actual state of your heart. And, and, and the Lord wants, us, wants to help us to be genuine in our faith, not just when other people are looking. So now let's get to the passage I started with because let's start moving forward with some of what we do when we're helping our, these small church pastors and some stuff that is really going to help you this morning as well in your spiritual growth. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, begins this way. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. When I tell pastors what I'm about to tell you, I get gasps in the audience every single time, which is weird. Because what I tell them is this. In almost every translation of the Bible, this is the only verse where the word pastor appears in the entire Bible. As pastor-centric as our churches are, we get one mention in the entire Bible. And in that place where pastors are mentioned, 
we are told that we're supposed to have a leadership team of five different people that also includes apostles, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Because of this, I now call this the pastoral prime mandate. It's the only place where we're mentioned and where we're told what to do as pastors. So I start by reminding pastors, you are not called to shoulder the entire burden of ministry. In a healthy congregation, what we do is we build up a team of leaders so that there's five different types of people doing five different types of ministry, supporting each other and loving each other and caring for the church. We are called as church leaders to build teams. So I encourage pastors and we give them resources to help them build teams in their own church and to share the load. Now today, though, as church members, if pastors are called to build a team, what are we called to do? Well, we're called to get on the team. It's not right. It's not biblical. It is not healthy to expect the pastor to do everything. And I am profoundly grateful to Cornerstone that we do this better than most. And quite frankly, Pastor Gary and Amy do a far better job at building the team than I ever did. It's one of the reasons we made the transition we made, because that's what we needed to strengthen more as we go forward. But the question you may have is, okay, I'm looking at that and I'm going, I don't think I have any of those gifts. And quite frankly, I don't think I'm called to be a leader. So am I just left out of this? No, because leaders are supposed to lead somebody somewhere, right? So let's take a look at the passage because it brings in the rest of us. Because leadership, 10, maybe 20% is all that are going to be called to lead on a regular basis. What about the rest of us? It tells us about the rest of us when we look at the rest of the passage. What are these five leaders called to do? Ephesians 4.12, to equip God's people for works of service. So the leaders are called to do what? Equip God's people. Any God's people in the house? Raise your hand if you're one of God's people. All right. Our job as leaders is to help to equip you to do works of service. So your job is what? To be equipped. (laughs) To be equipped. We're called to equip you. You're called to be equipped, which means you have to participate in the process. So when you attend, when you worship, when you serve, when you volunteer, when you give, when you spend time in fellowship, when we read the Bible together, all of this is about us helping to equip you for works of service because that's not what we want to do. That's what God requires of us according to the direct words of Scripture. And now a short break to talk about something else. If you like the content you're hearing, here are two things you can do for us. First, forward this podcast to a friend. Second, consider becoming a financial supporter through Patreon, Venmo, or PayPal. Just go to carlvaders.com support. For as little as $3 a month, you can help us put these resources into the hands of the ministries that need them the most. Our support link is in the show notes. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. In my new book, 
which we'll talk about in a minute. It's coming out in April. I have a chapter entitled Discipleship Fixes Everything, which sounds like I'm putting way too much on the shoulders of discipleship, but I'm not. Jesus called us to make disciples. And when I talk to pastors, I ask them, can you name a problem in your church that discipleship won't fix? And they can't. And same thing in your life. Think about it. Think of a problem in your life, a major issue that discipleship won't fix. I, can't, I dare you, because discipleship will fix it. Discipleship, which means being a more fully formed follower of Jesus, fixes everything. Having trouble with your finances? Becoming a, a better disciple of Jesus will help you fix that. Bad habits? Discipleship fixes that. Family issues? Discipleship fixes that. Work problems? Discipleship fixes that. You can't name a life issue that becoming a better follower of Jesus won't help to fix. Now, will it get rid of all of them? No. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. You're going to still have problems. But he also said, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Discipleship is such a key to everything, and we haven't emphasized it as much as we often should in a lot of our churches. But that's why we emphasize it so much here at Cornerstone. But here's the deal. If you want to become a more fully equipped disciple of Jesus, you have to be discipled. And no one can do that alone. You cannot disciple yourself. You cannot equip yourself. It's not possible. Anybody who goes into training for any discipline whatsoever, whether it's work or sports or emotional care or whatever it is, every single one of them who has any maturity at all understands you've got to have a strong team around you. You cannot coach yourself. You cannot equip yourself. You cannot disciple yourself. So that's what everything we do here is about. That's why we get up and preach on Sunday. It's why we read the Bible together. It's why we have Celebrate Recovery. It's why we have fristers and home groups and youth ministry, kid ministry, our preschool. All of it is about helping people to become more fully formed followers of Jesus, to be discipled. So if you're called to be a leader, step up on the team. We'll help you become a leader. If you're not called to be a leader, that's fine too. Be a, become a disciple by being discipled. We want to do that with you and for you. So, if we're going to be making disciples, what does the rest of the passage say the goal of discipleship is? Why are we called to equip God's people, and why are God's people called to be equipped? Here's why. The rest of verse 12 and verse 13. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. What is discipleship about? That's what it's about. What is becoming equipped about? That's what we're becoming equipped to do. So take a look at this. It outlines four reasons that these works of service, what they are expected to bring, four results that these works of service are expected to bring. We are to be equipped so the body of Christ may be built up, to reach unity in the faith, to become mature, and to attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now the key word in this entire passage is the word unity. Okay? Not unity at the expense of truth, not unity over truth, not unity instead of truth, because that's often how it's presented. Just getting along is more important than truth, but that's not the case in Scripture ever. We are called to unity in the faith, unity in the knowledge of the Son of God, unity in the fullness of Christ. And this is what builds up the church and helps us become mature believers. 
There's so much in this. We could t- teach an entire five or six week class on this and only feel like we scratched the surface. But if you want to know what discipleship looks like, there's your start. This is now why, you know, now why I say discipleship fixes everything. Imagine a church that was doing this. Imagine a church, a family, or a community filled with people who served each other, were building each other up, were united in faith, were mature believers, and were behaving like Jesus. Anybody got a problem with that? That's the kind of church I want to see. That's the kind of family I want to see. That's the kind of community I want to live within. This is what Shelly and I are being called to help encourage pastors to do. It's not about some special new innovative idea. It's about let's figure out how to do this better, to disciple people so that our churches look like that. Now, in a minute, I'm going to walk you through one last story of a pastor who's the kind of pastor we're trying to reach with resources. But before that, let me take a couple minutes, and I'm going to outline for you some of the ways you can help us to do this. First thing that we are looking for is our monthly financial support. Now that I'm no longer on staff here, I'm no longer being paid here, (laughs) and we still want to eat. (laughs) So yeah, we are going around uh, to our friends. We are going to other churches. We've got people who are stepping up to help support us on a monthly basis. If you are interested in finding out what that looks like, you don't need to make a commitment by signing up. You're just saying, hey, yeah, I'd like to sit down and find out what that might look like for us and how we can support you on a monthly basis. Shelly will be at the book table, uh, and uh, Veronica actually will be working with her at that. And we've got a bunch of times set up for the next couple weeks before we take off for a long trip. And uh, we want to buy you a cup of coffee and walk you through what partnering with us on a monthly basis would look like. We've already had conversations with several of you, and we have just enjoyed the chance to get to know each other better and to really talk about partnership. So if you would like to help us with monthly financial support, set up an appointment with Veronica at the book table today. Secondly, we need help with our launch fund. Uh, Last year, I spoke at 40 different in-person conferences. That's why I I can't do this anymore. i got a full-time job already. And this year, we are starting to expand that into places that um, have a greater need. It turns out in the ministry that we do with small churches, the places that need us the most can afford us the least. So as an example, at the end of this month, I'm heading to New Orleans, and I'm speaking to a group of uh, Jewish Christian pastors. And if you think being Jewish is difficult in today's environment, being Jewish and a Christian is even more challenging because they also often are exiled from their their families once they accept Christ as Messiah. Because it's a small group and because they're going through difficult things, they don't have enough money to pay Shelly and I both to go, and even what we'll receive when we get there will barely cover the costs of that trip. But those are the places that we want to go, so that's the kind of thing. And then after that, in March, um, we're going to be heading to Europe. There's a large organization in Europe that puts on a big conference every year for pastors, and I will be doing one of the keynote addresses there. At this point, they have over 6,000 pastors signed up to show up. Not for me. (laughs) I'm just one of several speakers. But because they are large, they are able to afford to fly Shelly and I over and back. Since the big group is, uh, is, is flying us over and back, we reached out to some small groups in that part of the world and asked, hey, while we're there, can we help you in a way that might not be as expensive because you can't afford to fly us over and back? 
and we've set up seven other conferences in Austria, Germany, and Switzerland, none of whom can afford us to come. And we've got a friend who's going to go with us as a translator. And it's going to cost us, we've put together about $8,000 more than they can pay us in order for us to do it. But that's part of why we're doing missions work. We're missionaries because it's going to cost us about $8,000 more than they can pay us. But we're there and we want to help. And the need throughout Central Europe for good pastoral teaching is just huge. So we've got seven other places. And so we're looking for a launch fund to help us with that. And then we're now talking with two different missionaries in Indonesia who want us to come in and do some teaching there in August. And that will cost us a good 10 grand or so more than what they can pay us. So we're looking for right off the top about $20,000 in addition to the monthly just to be able to do these two events that we've already said yes to because the need is so huge and we're just going to step out in faith and say, if the need is there and we say yes to answering the need, the Lord is going to help us to answer that need. So if you can help us with the launch fund, again, see us with that. And uh, one of the quickest ways to do that is there was a book Mark, put on your chair, and uh, on it, uh, give you all that information, including the QR code that'll get you directly to how you can help us with that, or Shelly can help you at the book table after the service. The third thing you can help us with is your skills or your time. If you have talent like graphic design or administration and so on, or if you just simply say, I got time on my hands, I can help you with phone calls if you ever need them. Sign up, let us know that you can help us with that, and uh, we're going to start putting together uh, just a collection of people that we know we can refer to at a moment's notice when we have these needs that arise. And then the fourth, hugely, is please be in prayer for us. Uh, Sign up to be on our prayer list at the book table, and um, any of those, if you do, you'll get our monthly newsletter that will keep you up to date on all of the things we do. Uh, Speaking of the book table, real quick before my one last a story about a wonderful pastor. At the book table, we do have the four books that are currently available. Uh, the Grasshopper Myth, uh, Small Church Essentials, 100 Days to a Healthier Church, and the Church Recovery Guide. Those are the prices and how you can get them. There are also some uh, versions of some of the translations of the first two books that you can take a look at and leaf through. Uh, and then in April, my next book is coming. It's called Desizing the Church, How Church Growth Became a Science, Then an Obsession, and What's Next. A couple years ago, I started looking around and thinking, you know, how do we come, become so obsessed with bigness in our culture? This doesn't seem like a natural thing. It had to have come from somewhere. So I did the research and I found out. And I've written about that. It'll be coming out in April. You can pre-order that book right now. And the manuscript for it is back there. So if you're just curious about books and you want to know what a manuscript looks like just before it becomes printed, you can go back and you can leave through that and see what that looks like. And you can uh, get all of that. Talking to Shelly at the book table, she'll help you with it. And uh, if you want to give with a check, you can pick up one of the envelopes by the back doors. There will be an offering later. It will be the one offering for the entire morning. But you can also give to us through that. Just put Vader's on the envelope. But let me close with this story as the band comes up. This is a story that I feel like I have told here, but my notes tell me I have not. (laughs) So if you've heard it before, it's just a good story to hear again. A couple years ago, Shelly and I were asked to go Uh, back to Newfoundland, Canada for the second time to teach a group of pastors. We'd already been once, and they asked us to come back and teach them some more. And when we were there, as we always do, we sit down every lunch with some of the pastors and hear their stories. And one day we were sitting down across from a pastor, and we asked him about about what he was doing. His name was Junior Andrews. And we asked, so Junior, where do you pastor? And he says, I pastor in Nain, Labrador. Now, where's Nain, Labrador? Some of you never didn't know Labrador was anything but a dog. North America is a giant V. 
On the top of the V on the west coast is Alaska. On the top of the V on the east coast is Labrador. He says, he is in, he says, I'm in Nain, Labrador. I said, what's it like? He says, well, it's a town of about 1,400 people. It is the northernmost town on the coast of Labrador, which means it's about as north as people live. He said, there are 1,400 people in Nain, and they're almost all Inuit. And for year after year after year, they had one pastor after another, and none of them lasted more than a year. And I said, Why? He said, well, Nain is so far north, even when you can go in and out, you can only go in and out by boat or by plane. There's no roads. But for seven months of the year, it's so cold that the entire town is frozen in and no one can go in and no one can leave for seven months of the year. So he said, every time the freeze was over, the pastor was like, I'm out of here. <laughs> so we asked him, so how long have you been there? And he said, me and my wife have been there for 14 years. Shelly and I just looked at each other and realized, okay, we're in the presence of somebody special here. So he said, tell me about what ministry is like in Nain, Labrador. He said, well, we got there the first year, and in addition to being frozen for seven months of the year, every once in a while, blizzards will come through, and they'll lock everybody into their houses for days or weeks at a time. You can't leave the house. The blizzard's so bad. It happens regularly. He said, after the first one happened, we had church the next Sunday, and we noticed several people were missing, and didn't think much of it. And then the next Sunday, we noticed they were missing again. And so we went and we visited. They were some of the older folks in the church. And we found some of them frozen to death in their homes. So we asked, why? What's going on? And what happens is the Inuit for generations have been nomadic. They've walked around everywhere and they only owned what they could carry. And so the older folks, especially now that they're living in a town their entire culture, their entire being doesn't, can't conceive of having more in the house than what they can carry on their back, including firewood. So he said, once we realized that, we realized one of our first jobs as pastor was, we're going to go out every day we can and we're going to cut down as many trees as we can. We're going to haul them home and we're going to prepare firewood. And before every blizzard comes, we're going to head off on our snow machine and we're going to go to every house of every vulnerable person we know and we're going to give them enough firewood to outlast the storm. And for 14 years, we've saved lives after lives after lives. And I said, what does the future look like in Nain for you? He said, actually, I'm heading back for my retirement party. He said, I'm 74 years of age, and I just had my fourth heart attack. I said, sir, you are dismissed with thanks. I said, what was the hardest part of ministering in Nain? Was it the weather he said no it wasn't he said the hardest part was being accepted by the people it's a very closed culture because the Inuit have learned through bitter experience over the years that when people show up saying hey I'm from the church or the government and I'm here to help it doesn't often go well for them and it took years for them to understand that we actually were here to bless them and to help them so he said before I left to come to this conference I was actually talking to my best friend, man I led to the Lord, an Inuit man I led to the Lord and who is now a board member of the church. And I asked him, why was I accepted within this culture? And he said, Pastor, it's simple. You came, you stayed, and you loved us. 
I don't know a better definition of success in life or ministry than that. Show up, stick around, and love people in Jesus' name. That's what we tried to do for 31 years. And because of the love that you've shown us back, we now get to share that with people around the country and around the world. And we get to resource people like that. And then we get to retell their stories to other pastors to encourage them. That is not about the latest innovation. It's not about the coolest new thing. Show up. Stick around. And let people know Jesus loves them. Amen. I got to tell you, I feel so honored and so touched every time I get to tell stories of the small churches and their pastors like the one in Maine, Labrador. If you or your church ever feel called to help us with folks like this in places like that, here's what to do. In March, we're actually heading to Europe. I'm speaking at a large conference in Germany that can pay our way there and back. So since they can pay for us to get there, we reached out to see if there were smaller places in that part of the world where we could help out in places where they can't afford to bring in a speaker. The response was huge. It turns out we're going to end up spending over two weeks conducting eight small church conferences throughout Switzerland, Germany, and Austria. These are in places that can't afford even what it will cost us in expenses above the cost that we're already getting reimbursed for for the big trip. So this trip is not going to pay us. It's actually going to run us about $8,000 above what that first larger conference is paying us to come and speak to them. So if you can help us to cover these costs, we'd appreciate you helping us with the Europe project. All you have to do is go to carlvaders.com support to give a one-time gift. Everything we receive there from now through March 2024 will pay for the expenses of the Europe project. And while you're there, if you'd like to know how to support us on a monthly basis with anything from finances to prayer to whatever skill set you may have, you'll be shown how to contact us to set up a face-to-face meeting so that we can talk with you personally about our plans and about how you or your church can help other small churches in need. After that, we have a bunch of places that we'll be speaking at from May through November in 2024, including New Jersey, Arkansas, West Virginia, New York, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Oklahoma, Connecticut, and in August, we're taking our first ever trip to Jakarta, Indonesia. So you can check out carlvaders.com calendar for our full itinerary to find out when we might be near you. And if you'd like to get in touch with us about having me speak to your group, go to carlvaders.com slash contact me. All of those references will be in your show notes. This episode was produced by Veronica Beaver. It was edited by Phil Vaders. Original theme music was written and performed by Jack Wilkins of jackwilkinsmusic.com. The graphic design is by Solomon Joy. And me, I'm Carl Vaders, and I hope to talk with you again in the church lobby.